0: Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. Let me just close this real quick. So if you need a back-end developer, a UI designer, or a project manager for six days or six months, Upwork is how. Hey, I have this room booked at noon. I'm just wrapping up here. Upwork professionals have the flexibility and capability to work from anywhere. Yeah, it's 1201. It's all yours. Which is nice if you're already low on conference rooms. Plus, they're proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how.
1: Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zannie Minton-Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Coming up, you'll hear some of the highlights from the latest edition of The Economist. These are just a sample of our unrivaled global analysis, unpicking the stories behind the headlines. Here's one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store this week. Thanks Danny, it's August the 15th, 2019, I'm Josie DeLapp. Coming up, our cover story this week. Markets are braced for a global downturn. The mood just now is not complacency, but anxiety, and it is deepening by the day. So far, a recession is a fear, not a reality. Next, Bernie Sanders has developed an almost cult-like hold on a small but meaningful minority of the Democratic electorate. Mr Sanders probably cannot win the Democratic ticket, but he could hand it to a moderate and the election to Donald Trump. And finally, when Narendra Modi was re-elected last May, the Mumbai stock market soared to a record high. He won against India's anti-business and fiscally feckless opposition. But bosses and investors are growing disenchanted with India's Prime Minister. That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. So please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radio offer. First up... Investors used to be complacent about the risk of recession. Not anymore.
0: Looking for meaning in financial markets is like looking for patterns in a violent sea. The information that emerges is the product of buying and selling by people with all their contradictions. Prices reflect a mix of emotion, biases and cold-eyed calculation. Yet, taken together, markets express something about both the mood of investors and the temper of the times. The most commonly ascribed signal is complacency. Dangers are often ignored until too late. However, the dominant mood in markets today, as it has been for much of the past decade, is not complacency but anxiety, and it is deepening by the day. It is most evident in the astounding appetite for the safest of assets, government bonds. In Germany, where figures this week showed that the economy is shrinking, interest rates are negative all the way from overnight deposits to 30-year bonds. Investors who buy and hold bonds to maturity will make a guaranteed cash loss. In Switzerland, negative yields extend all the way to 50-year bonds. Even in indebted and crisis-prone Italy, a 10-year bond gets you only 1.5%. In America, meanwhile, the curve is inverted. Interest rates on 10-year bonds are lower than on three-month bills, a peculiar situation that is a harbinger of recession. Angst is evident elsewhere, too. The safe haven dollar is up against many other currencies. Gold is at a six-year high. Copper prices, a proxy for industrial health, are down sharply. Despite Iran's seizure of oil tankers in the Gulf, oil prices have sunk to $60 a barrel. Plenty of people fear that these strange signals portend a global recession. The storm clouds are certainly gathering. This week, China said that industrial production is growing at its most sluggish pace since 2002. America's decade-long expansion is the oldest on record, so whatever economists say, a downturn feels overdue. With interest rates already so low, the capacity to fight one is depleted. Investors fear that the world is turning into Japan with a torpid economy that struggles to vanquish deflation and is hence prone to going backwards. Yet a recession is so far a fear, not a reality. The world economy is still growing, albeit at a less healthy pace than in 2018. Its resilience rests on consumers, not least in America. Jobs are plentiful, wages are picking up, credit is still easy, and cheaper oil means there is more money to spend. What is more, there has been little sign of the heady exuberance that normally precedes a slump. The boards of public companies and the shareholders they ostensibly serve have played it safe. Businesses in aggregate are net savers. Investors have favoured firms that generate cash without needing to splurge on fixed assets. You see this and the vastly contrasting fortunes of America's high-flying stock market, dominated by capital-light internet and services firms that throw off profits, and Europe's groaning under banks and under carmakers with factories that eat up capital. And within Europe's stock markets, a defensive stock, such as Nestle, is trading at a towering premium to an industrial one such as Daimler. If there has been no boom and the world economy has not yet turned to bust, why then are markets so anxious? The best answer is that firms and markets are struggling to get to grips with uncertainty. This, not tariffs, is the greatest harm from the trade war between America and China. The boundaries of the dispute have stretched from imports of some industrial metals to broader categories of finished goods. New fronts, including technology, supply chains, and this month currencies have opened up. As Japan and South Korea let their historical differences spill over into trade, it is unclear who or what might be drawn in next. Because big investments are hard to reverse, firms are disinclined to press ahead with them. A proxy measure from J.P. Morgan Chase suggests that global capital spending is now falling. Evidence that investment is being curtailed is reflected in surveys of plunging business sentiment, installing manufacturing output worldwide, and in the stuttering performance of industry-led economies, not least Germany. Central banks are anxious too, and easing policy as a result. In July, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates for the first time in a decade as insurance against a downturn. It is likely to follow that with more cuts. Central banks in Brazil, India, New Zealand, Peru, the Philippines and Thailand have all reduced their benchmark interest rates since the Fed acted. The European Central Bank is likely to resume its bond-buying programme. Despite these efforts, anxiety could turn to alarm and sluggish growth descend into recession. Three warning signals are worth watching. First, the dollar, which is a barometer of risk appetite. The more investors reach for the safety of the greenback, the more they see danger ahead. Second come the trade negotiations between America and China. This week, President Donald Trump unexpectedly delayed the tariffs announced on August 1st on some imports, raising hopes of a deal. That ought to be in his interests, as a strong economy is critical to his prospects of re-election next year. But he may nevertheless be misjudging the odds of a downturn. Mr Trump may also find that China decides to drag its feet in the hope of scuppering his chances of a second term and of getting a better deal, or one likelier to stick, with his democratic successor. The third thing to watch is corporate bond yields in America. Financing costs remain remarkably low, but the spread, or extra yield, that investors require to hold riskier corporate debt has begun to widen. If growing anxiety were to cause spreads to blow out, highly geared firms would find it costlier to roll over their debt. That could lead them to cut back on payrolls as well as investment in order to make their interest payments. The odds of a recession would then shorten. When people look back, they will find plenty of inconsistencies in the configuration of today's asset prices. The extreme anxiety in bond markets may come to look like a form of recklessness. How could markets square the rise in populism with a fear of deflation, for instance? It is a strange thought that a sudden easing of today's anxiety might lead to violent price changes, a surge in bond yields, a sideways crash in which high-priced defensive stocks slump and beaten-up cyclicals rally. Eventually, there might even be too much exuberance. But just now, who worries about that?
1: What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa, More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers, establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com next a small but meaningful minority of the democratic electorate are backing bernie
2: the bernie barnstorm held in fort collins home of colorado state university started a few minutes late i know bernie time right Josh, an organiser, sent from Washington, D.C., to the crowd of 80 who had turned up to volunteer for Bernie Sanders's nascent campaign in the state. Some were signed up to host a phone bank, which involves using a digital system known as the Bernie Dialer. Others pledged to canvas and to put the results into a database called the Burn app. Meanwhile, the assembled Sandinistas were invited to come to the mic and say why they were so excited about Bernie, with a little steer from another campaign staffer, you have the same feeling in your heart that I have, and you are dedicated and loyal. The declarations this elicited said a lot about the senator from Vermont's effect on his followers. Several described Mr Sanders as a sort of benevolent guru. Bernie is a humanist and a visionary and a radical, said one. I'm for Bernie because he's for me, said another. All considered Mr Sanders to be more authentic than other politicians. Donald Trump pretends to be a populist. Bernie's the real thing, said a 22-year-old transgender Sanders fan. Many stressed their suspicion of his rivals. I'm doing my best not to dog on other candidates, but that Kamala Harris health care plan, said Joe Salazar, a failed, though Sanders-endorsed, candidate for Colorado's attorney general. By contrast, Bernie's plan's been refined through fire, he claimed. He's been working on it, getting all the numbers down for years. Not since Eugene McCarthy in 1968 have Democrats faced such an anomaly – After the unexpected success of his 2016 presidential run, Mr Sanders has developed an almost cult-like hold on a small but meaningful minority of the Democratic electorate. By tapping it for cash, he appears also to have a durable campaign. He is among the first candidates on the ground in Colorado, a state he won easily in 2016, and last month, had nearly $30 million in hand. Even if he looked unable to win the nomination, he would be able to stay in the contest. And having pointedly refused to commit to supporting the winning candidate, he might well do so. That could matter a great deal, because the chances are Mr Sanders cannot win. The 43% of the vote he won in 2016, which makes that contest seem closer than it was, is a distant memory. Having performed strongly in early polling this year, he has slid as Elizabeth Warren has risen. The senator from Massachusetts is not as left-wing as Mr Sanders. She presents herself as a disappointed capitalist, not a socialist, which is a more digestible position on the Democratic left. Contrary to what Mr Salazar thinks, she also has a much firmer grip on policy. Above all, she is a Democrat, not an aggrieved Independent as Mr Sanders is, who would support any of her 23 rivals if she lost. The two left-wingers are each polling at around 15% of the vote, a strikingly poor result for Mr Sanders' superior resources and name recognition. Earlier in the campaign, it seemed possible that he could emulate Mr Trump by sneaking through a crowded contest with a loyal minority. His minority now looks too small. This raises a fundamental question about what Mr Sanders' rise and fall says about the left and several tactical ones. Starting with the first, Mr Sanders's erstwhile success appears to have owed less to his left-wing proposals than a vaguer appetite for disruption The fact that 12% of his supporters in 2016 voted for Mr Trump illustrates that. Those who care mostly about health care or education policy appear since to have shifted to Ms Warren. The remaining diehards seem more energised by anti-establishment grievance. An Iranian-American Sanders fan in Fort Collins drew an approving cheer for hailing his hero as the Mossadegh of America. Only at a Sanders rally could an Iranian nationalist, overthrown by a CIA-inspired plot, count as a point of reference. Most of the volunteers said they expected the Democratic Party to rig the election against Mr Sanders. Many said they would not support any other winning candidate. Democratic politicians still believe Mr Sanders's 2016 insurgency showed the party had moved in a big way to the left, hence the alacrity with which many of his rivals have aped his free-college-style proposals. But the burn-it-down iconoclasm of his base does not seem so consistent or easily mollified as that would imply. Elizabeth Warren can kiss my ass, said Rose, a socialist office clerk. Joe Biden is a moderate Republican. They've totally infiltrated the Democrats, said Remy, a democratic socialist acupuncturist who offered free treatments to any volunteer who showed up to her phone bank. In terms of tactics, Mr Saunders is most pressingly a problem for Ms Warren. After flirting with more moderate positions, notably on health care, she has essentially adopted a more informed and nuanced version of Mr Sanders' policies. In other words, she is going after his supporters. Yet if Mr Sanders stayed in the race come what may, dividing the Democratic left, that could prove to be a fatal mistake. It might well hand the ticket to a moderate, most probably Mr Biden still the front-runner. Thereafter, an unreconciled Mr Sanders would become a general election problem for Democrats. His aggrieved minority is easily sufficient to deny their candidate victory in close-fought states, such as Michigan or Wisconsin. Thus did McCarthy help ensure Hubert Humphrey's defeat by Richard Nixon in 1968, and Mr. Sanders help ensure Hillary Clinton's to Donald Trump. Almost all the Sandinistas in Fort Collins who admitted to having voted for Mrs. Clinton said they were embarrassed to have done so. And it must be said, the blithe status quoism of Mr. Biden could be even more off-putting to Mr. Sanders's supporters than her wonkish pragmatism. Victory for Mr. Biden, then for Mr. Trump. That would be a poor return on Mr Sanders's promise of political revolution. Yet it is far more imaginable.
1: And finally, India Inc. is worried about their Prime Minister's business bashing.
3: In May, champagne corks popped as Mumbai's bankers, investors and industrialists fated the re-election of Narendra Modi, as India's Prime Minister. His Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party's defeats in regional elections last autumn raised the possibility of a return to power of the left-leaning Congress Party, which most of India Inc. views, with some justification, as anti-business, corrupt and fiscally feckless. Mr Modi's landslide victory therefore set corporate pulses racing the Mumbai stock market soared to a record high. So did expectations that he would follow first-term coups like a new bankruptcy code and a goods and services tax with fresh, business-friendly measures. Modi knows how to change the goalposts, gushed one respected tycoon on election night. His fellow moguls nodded in agreement. Two months later, the elation is gone. Despite an uptick in August, Mumbai's Sensex stock index is about as close to October's lows as it is to June's highs. In July, foreigners pulled more money out of Indian equities than they put in. India's cautious business press has begun to criticise the government. So, too, even more gingerly, have its cowed business leaders. There is no demand and no private investment, groused Rahul Bajaj, chairman of Bajaj Auto, a motorcycle maker, at its annual meeting in late July. So where will growth come from? The remark, widely interpreted as a swipe at Mr Modi, encapsulates Indian businesses' disenchantment with the man they once regarded as their champion. The immediate cause of the mood swing was the budget, presented on July 5th by Nirmala Sitaraman, the newly appointed finance minister. Business folk tuned in to the two-hour presentation, expecting less red tape, fewer tariffs, more incentives for investment and lower taxes. They got the opposite. At an international bank, Analysts' feigned interest turned to mild bewilderment, then despair, as Ms Sita Rahman recited the budget's 143 provisions. The top marginal tax rate for high earners would increase from 35.9%, already above the level in most emerging economies, to 42.7%, roughly as much as the average in the OECD club of mostly rich countries. The corporate tax rate for big companies stayed at 35%, compared with a global average of 23% and 21% in America. Or at least, it appeared to. A new levy of 20% on share buybacks on top of existing charges would bring the capital gains rate above 40%, among the highest in the world. Add in a tax on dividends and a recently imposed charge on recipients, and, all told, the government could skim off 60% of corporate profits. New tariffs would be slapped on products from cashews to newsprint to fibre-optic cables. One banker recounts listening to the speech from the shower the last vestige of optimism washing down the drain. As observers unpacked the budget's convoluted text over the subsequent weeks, unintended consequences became apparent. To close loopholes, the bill extended taxes to the kinds of trust used by foreign portfolio investors, whom the government hopes to court. This turned them from heavy buyers of Indian equities to net sellers. Some high earners wonder if it is time to decamp to more functional, business-friendlier Dubai or Singapore, especially after India's Parliament amended the Companies Act on July 30th to let the government jail executives at big firms that do not spend part of their post-tax profits on corporate social responsibility. All this looks like an odd way to boost India's flagging animal spirits, the deeper reason for corporate India's malaise. Anomalies in the country's GDP numbers, not all of which can be blamed on Mr Modi, have raised suspicions that India's growth rate may have been significantly overstated. Indians are beginning to skimp on hair oil, toothpaste and other essentials, Hitting retailers and consumer goods firms. Collapsing car and tractor sales in the past couple of months are reverberating down the supply chain, from parts makers to steel companies. Demand for building materials is so feeble that one industry bigwig says his workers mostly perform maintenance work. Exports are stagnant. Companies caught up in China's trade row with America are relocating their supply chains to Bangladesh and Vietnam, not India. The budget, and the statist signal it sends, is unlikely to encourage new spending by either domestic firms or foreign ones. Business investment has been sluggish since 2015, a year after Mr Modi first took office, a state of affairs for which the government is again not solely to blame. Lots of firms borrowed heavily to invest earlier in the decade, when India's economy appeared to be on a roll. Its subsequent wobble exposed a Himalaya of bad loans, particularly at state-owned banks which dominate lending. More recently, liquidity and solvency crises hit shadow banks, which finance some businesses and many consumer purchases, including cars and motorbikes. Investments are the last thing on struggling bosses' minds. Announcements of new capital spending tracked by the Independent Centre for Monitoring Indian Economy, or CMIE, fell from 10.3 trillion rupees, that's $207 billion, in the first quarter of 2009, to 2.4 trillion rupees from January to March this year. Instead, companies have returned a growing share of profits to shareholders. Combined, the two trends do not exactly amount to a vote of confidence in India Inc.'s prospects. Powerful industries with lots of workers and lobbyists, such as vehicle manufacturers, who want a cut in the 28% sales tax on their products, are seeking favour with the government. Everybody else has to cut costs. Slash investments and cling on to cash, chief executives grumble. Both listed and unlisted firms' return on equity, which began Mr Modi's first term well below a peak in 2006-7, to ended it lower still. Profits at 399 of India's biggest public companies have declined by 3.7% a year on average on his watch, according to Refinitiv, a data provider. The CMIE calculates that asset utilisation has dropped from 50% in the 2000s to below 40%. Asked on July 8th about the post-budget stock market route, Ms Sita Rahman replied that she did not let this sort of thing affect my calms. If so, warned one financier at the time, then the markets will fall until her calms are affected. Whether or not the subsequent falls rattled the minister herself, they appear to have jolted the government. Its initial response was to drag bosses in for confidential consultations, including at least one attended by Mr Modi himself. The official's conclusion, says a person close to the events, was that messaging was the problem, not the message. Masita Rahman was dispatched to pose for photos, listening to the concerns of bankers and captains of industry. This was a welcome change from the Modi government's previous insularity. So was its promise, in response to panicked pleas from companies, not to lock up executives for stinting on social projects. The central bank's 35 basis point cut in interest rates on August 7th raised spirits. But neither removes the desert of sand that still silts up the wheels of Indian commerce. Business people who have spoken with Mr Modi say he is clever and focused. In private, they insist, he gets the need for a less overweening officialdom. They praise the bankruptcy code though it was partially stymied by the courts, and excuse missteps such as a disruptive withdrawal from circulation of certain banknotes. They do not talk about his sometimes ugly Hindu nationalism. Some speculate, longingly, that the business bashing is part of a cunning strategy to distance himself from the wealthy, in order, when the time comes, to reform India's stifling labour laws. Yet they also confide that the Prime Minister often asks not what the government can do for companies, but what they can do for the government. He is increasingly viewed not as broadly pro-market, but selectively pro-business. His goodwill extends to companies whose goals align with his own, bankers who offer cheap loans to the poor, energy firms which furnish households with gas and electricity, Corporations which improve sanitation in villages near their factories. Favoured firms are kept on life support with credit from state-controlled lenders, leaving less capital for everyone else. Such complaints aren't widely heard, not because they are rare, but because they are not made in public. Soto Voce, denizens of India Inc., say they fear retribution from the authorities. Criticism can provoke a call from an official that carries the implied threat of lost contracts or withdrawn permits, they say. After the suicide in July of the founder of a coffee chain who claimed to have been harassed by the tax authorities, the term tax terrorism, first coined in 2014, has gained new traction. Indian entrepreneurs share stories of protracted investigations that cripple businesses. Most of these problems are endemic in India. Despite the liberalisation of the Licence Raj in the early 1990s, the country has never quite let go of its deeply ingrained interventionism. But the Prime Minister, whose 13-year tenure as Chief Minister of the Western State of Gujarat won him a reputation for sound economic management, was going to be different, members of the put-upon corporate class hoped. As he begins his sixth year as India's Prime Minister, some of them are beginning to wonder if the state's success owes more to go-getting Gujaratis than to their erstwhile leader.
1: Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is The Economist. Mom, delivery!
0: You've been loading up on things from Walmart?
1: Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5%, 5% back! back.
2: With what?
1: The Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart Online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One USANA.